Okay. Grab your Bibles, if you don't mind, and go to Romans chapter 12, please. Uh, For those of you a little less acquainted with the Scriptures, it's a beautiful letter, written with rich poetry and yet with uh, a great sense of legal content and legal language. And it's a letter Paul writes to the early church in Rome at the time of the Caesars. And so it carries, uh, I think, a lot of weight and substance to us. Uh, The church certainly in our day is moving from the center stage to the fringes. Uh, The time in which we were, at least in the States, which is where we live now, Merrill and I live in Los Angeles, Orange County actually, we're not good enough to live in LA, but we're beautiful enough to live in Orange County. Hey, my love. LA people don't dig Orange County people. They haven't seen the light. So so this is a fabulous book and um, a a letter written. It's about 85% in the Bible, if you don't quite know. Open your Bible in the middle, turn right, and keep following your map quest, and you will find Romans. Therefore, Paul writes, and uh, whenever I see the word therefore, I want to know what it's there for. And so we go to the few verses ahead, which is commonly known as a doxology, which is a great piece of poetry around praise. And um, Paul writes, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Yeah. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? But from him and through him and for him are all things. But from him and through him and for him are all things. Probably the greatest thing we need to understand the journey of the gospel is humility. When we position ourselves as the masters of knowledge, the creators of morality, we end up faltering to find the most beautiful one in all of the universe, in timelessness and spacelessness, the great God that we love. And Paul offers us this doxology because of where he's taking us now. And he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. In other words, if you don't posture yourself for the renewing of your mind, you'll never understand, is what I hear him saying, what the will of God is, which is good. Which is good. Which is pleasing. And which is... Perfect. Three extraordinary adjectives to describe his will. It's good. It's pleasing. And it's perfect. For by grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. We think of ourselves more highly when we are the measure of all things. Our knowledge is the measure of all knowledge. Our morality is the measure of all morality. That's when we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Help us now, Lord, as we we look at this exquisite passage of Scripture. Open our eyes. Let the lights go on. Open our hearts. Let our passions, feelings, discernments come alive again. Let us feel fully human in this chaotic world in which we live. 
because of the wonder of your text and the glory of your mystery. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, for those of you who don't know, Meryl and I have been married for 38 years this past Thursday. Thanksgiving Day in the U.S. was our 38th wedding anniversary. And uh, we have been in uh, salaried ministry for about 35 years, both school teachers historically, and Meryl is now a marriage and family therapist, having gone back to do her master's in marriage and family therapy at the age of 52. Now, why am I saying all of that? Because when we exchange notes, we find a a repeated rhythm, almost a, a repeated rhyme, in which people are saying to us continuously things like, I am so anxious... I am so fearful, I carry such shame, and there is such fear in my heart, and I don't have a clue who I am. I have no sense of identity or self-awareness. Now, may I suggest, and my thesis this morning, is three simple layers around the conversation of the will of God. I think if we get this, my suspicion, and I I may be guilty of simplicity, And forgive me for that if it's true. But I think the simplicity of this is understanding the ancient prayer, the most exquisite ancient prayer of Jesus. But when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask. But in spite of that, Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed, hallowed be your name. Can I sidebar for just a moment? I'm a father of three kids. Second to being married, I absolutely love being a dad. Beyond any shadow of a doubt. Nothing pleases me as much outside of being a husband. But what saddens me as a father is to see people who cannot hallowed my father's name. I want to say, really? Is he not exquisite? Is he not kind and gentle and merciful and all-knowing and all-embracing? Is he not just the one that is most worthy? My praise that it's most exuberant should be embarrassing by its limitations. I cannot help myself but to sing his glorious praises. Again, as a father, can I say to all of us, as the little matrix yardstick of our heart, when you cannot sing of how wonderful he is, even if you croak like a bullfrog, if you cannot do that, maybe it's a posture to pause and to say, Lord, my soul is hardened beyond description. Would you redeem my broken heart? For I, who cannot praise the most exquisite one, reflects a very broken soul. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And ladies and gentlemen, I want to argue as a pastor, Meryl is a therapist, and in our privilege of leading, we lead a, we've just planted again. Um, At 58, God asked me to plant again. Meryl was 54 at the time. We have this delightful little community in Orange County now. We parachuted into Costa Mesa, which is near Newport Beach. And um, it was Meryl, Tion, my son, who's at University of San Diego right now, and me. That was our planting team. That's how we started. 
And a year in, we're about 60, 70 people, and the average age is 22, and I say to them often, why would you want to hang out with a granny and grandpa? It makes no sense whatsoever. But I think there is something exquisite, dear friends, when we wrestle with the questions of meaning and identity and despair and hopelessness, not by charismatic rhetoric, but by the glorious understanding of the will of God for my life. And I want to take you on three layers, and I'm going to try and be as sharp as I can be. And uh, the first one is a little nerdy. It's a little wordy. So if you're like, Chris, what the hell are you talking about? Then you just say, the two coming that are more understandable. Are you with me? Is that okay? Yeah. But, 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 but I, I want to add this in, because we have been held captive by many aspects of living in the postmodern secular world. And Paul gave us an inkling of what that would be like in 2 Timothy when he said this. Please understand this. He says, in the last days, which we're in, in the last of the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Yep, that's us. We've got Trump as a president. Times of great difficulty. For God, for people, will be three things. Lovers of self, lovers of money, and then he gives them and mentions a whole bunch of things. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, disobedient to their parents, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now I want to suggest, and, and, and John Stott, my favorite British theologian, said, Culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. Our culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. I read that in probably 1985, and it's never lost me. And so all of us are vulnerable to the prevailing voices and pressures that our culture offers because the enemy who robs, kills, and destroys wants to blind, deafen, and dope us. And the three ways he's getting it right in our postmodern millennial world is that people are guilty, and I say we, not them, of rampant individualism where I am the measure of all things. What I say, what I think, what I do is the measure of all things. And I think there is nothing that blinds our spiritual growth and maturity and wholeness quite like rampant individualism. Don't tell me what to do. We silence the voice of the teacher and the prophet because we refuse to bow to the understanding that there could be knowledge that will transform me that I don't have. Insatiable materialism. You know, you know, when I landed, let me speak just kind of guttural at the moment. When we landed in LA in 1996, uh, it was an existing church, very broken, Pentecostal heritage. And uh, so uh, I thought, let me meet the leaders. There weren't many. What were they, about eight couples or something, my babe, uh, who were home group leaders kind of thing. And so I spent time with each one of them. Here are some interesting things. The first one, and I won't mention their names, I don't want to be embarrassing. We're sitting together and, and this couple says to me, in the conversation, says, yeah, we've got, I think it was $35,000 debt. So I said, wow, your house is obviously almost paid off. And they no, no, no. Oh, is it your car? No, 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 we just spend money we don't have. Ha, 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 ha. And I thought, you leaders in this church, I'm assuming the elders know that you have this consumer debt, just money you've spent that you don't have, and you're a leader in this church, meaning that the level of your faith is debt. 
that's interesting. Meet with the next couple. Older couple. They were in their 50s. They were like really old then. Now that I'm 60, they were really young then. And we sit together and uh, chat, chat, chat. Oh, so how long have you been married? Oh, three years. Oh. Um, what's the story? Oh, no, no, well, I got divorced and I got divorced. And, and I thought no one felt the need to tell me. See, folks, our culture blinds, deafens, and dopes us. We live in a reality crafted by our culture which we deem to be normal. And the joy and wonder of spiritual freedom and liberation is when we embrace the Word of God, your kingdom come, your beautiful, exquisite, liberating will be done. As in heaven, as on earth. If heaven is a geography, there. Or is it simply being with Him? Rampant individualism, I do it my way. Don't tell me what to do. Insatiable materialism, I will live with debt because it's what we do. And the pursuance of pleasure. No one can tell me not to do what I'm doing. My life is governed by the pursuit of happiness, which is kind of Socrates and the idea of the good life. We have to recraft the narrative of what the good life really is like. Okay, so what are the three things, and I'm going to skip things because of time, which is never my friend. The first, and remember, I'm a wordsmith, so I have fun with words. So if you say, what on earth are you talking about? I might not know either, but we're going to have fun. There are three levels or collaborative ingredients of the will of God. And the first is cosmic collusion. I'll explain that in a moment. 1961, there was a professor at MIT. And um, he went, and, and his job was to weather predict. And so he punched in, now uh, forgive my lack of knowledge here, you science boffs, because you're going to smile inwardly thinking you are so foolish. But, but this is, and I'm quoting from the articles I read. So what he had to do was he was tasked with weather predicting what it would look like. So he punched numbers in. And instead of punching in the full number of 0.506127, he decided in the haste of it all, let's just punch in 0.506. And he went to get coffee. When he came back, the simple difference between 0.506 and 0.506127 produced a completely different weather scenario. It created a scientific hoo-ha. So he was asked in 1972 at the American Association for Advanced Science to speak on how such a small difference produced a completely different weather pattern. He didn't know what to call it, so his mate, Philip Marillis, I don't know how to pronounce his name, concocted this title for his message. Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Called the butterfly effect. Does the flap of a butterfly's wings in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? Question mark. Well, needless to say, since 1972, there's been this huge scientific conflap. Can a butterfly flapping its wings somewhere in the Amazon have any effect on global climate shift somewhere else in the world? It created such curiosity that even in pop culture, 1990, Robert Redford in the movie Havana, in the role Jack Wheel said this, as a gambler with a knack for maths, says to his co-star Lena Olin, he says, a butterfly can flutter its wings over a flower in China and cause a hurricane in the Caribbean. 
Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and on earth. Now why have I told that story? Because I think, ladies and gentlemen, the number one reason why we don't have meaning, identity, we live with anxiety and fear, is because we don't understand our role in the cosmic plan of God. We think it doesn't make any difference. If I cheat on my wife, it makes no difference. If I don't tithe, it makes no difference. If I don't obey God in the little things called Christian community, it will make no difference. And when I was prepping this, out of the blue, this I've not preached this message anywhere, and I was preparing myself for this time, and Meryl and I were possibly going to co-share, co-teach it, but fortunately she ran out of time, so I have more time. But, but I was stunned by that, and I thought so few people have the sense of meaning and identity because we fit into God's cosmic plan. Even if the full science, which is yet to be concluded, of the butterfly flapping its wings and the tornado is not fully true, but the domino effect of the slightest action producing the most transformative moment, ladies and gentlemen, gives me meaning. I am not on this planet by chance. What God has put into me by cosmic implication is not a moment of fate. It is by divine design and it makes the most sense when I embrace the butterfly effect. When the little action I take actually carries an enormous set of consequences. The humility is I don't always see it. If the butterfly has a personality and if the butterfly comes into land on a flower in the jungle of Brazil and turns to its butterfly mate and says, I have no idea where I'm living. I have no idea why any of this has any meaning. And six months later, a tornado hits Texas and the butterfly says, nothing matters. Because it doesn't understand the flap of its wing was part of the crucial process of a tornado being set off somewhere else in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, do you believe that? You see, the young evangelicals, in a great book by Robert Weber, talking about the young evangelicals, and I want to read this to you, says the younger evangelical, you millennials, sees theology as a way to understand the world. It is an understanding based on the biblical narrative. In the context of the younger evangelicals are calling on us to see the world primarily through the Christian story. They believe in God, revealed in the great events of the creation, incarnation, and recreation, Interpreted first by the prophets and apostles, protected by the creeds, handed down to us through the worship of the church. Theology is not a science. It's a reflection of God's community on the narrative of God's involvement in history. I don't know why, but we were praying downstairs this morning and I thought of Mahatma Gandhi. And most of you don't know that Mahatma Gandhi grew up in South Africa. And Before Mahatma Gandhi moved to India... He went and visited churches around South Africa looking for meaning, purpose, and no church could give him that. And it was returning to his homeland and steeping himself in the Hinduism of his faith 
that actually produced in him the robust peacemaker, peace giver that changed India and ultimately got him killed. A butterfly effect of a Christian who took the strange looking Indian man under their wing in a racist driven South Africa could have made all the difference to a nation of now 1.3 billion people and that woman who never did, who took this Indian man because of racial prejudice under her wing and fed him, may have had the butterfly effect of a nation being changed. The problem is, we do not think of our role in cosmic collusion. We think what we do makes no real difference. That's why I use that language and that story, because I want us to understand, dear friends, we are pivotal to the story of God. The meta-narrative is the cute, fancy word. The big story of God, we are pivotal to that. And I have to know why I, as a 60-year-old, am on the planet in Orange County doing what I do to help fulfill the meta-narrative of God. I am a domino in that great story, and me being there is essential to that conclusion. Are you with me? I am sensitive, maybe too sensitive these days as I get older. I cry too easily. I feel people's pain too readily. I've been doing this too long. But my limp and my pain is the meaninglessness that spreads across too many faces because we do not understand we matter. You know what young millennials want to do? Forgive me talking about you as if you're not in the room. They want to be seen and they want to be heard. They want to be validated. My friend Lucas Chauke, as a white South African, I prayed, God, give me a black friend. And God did. His name is Lucas Chauke, a little guy like this from Gazankulu. And he told me a story which I've reflected on many, many times over the decades that, that, uh, since our friendship happened. And in this culture, you are not allowed to greet your father lest your father greets you. And he tells the story of arriving at the station. His father worked on the mines in Johannesburg. And there were nine kids, love if I remember correctly, three mothers. And as a little boy, six, seven, eight, I don't remember, he ran to the station because his dad was coming home. And his dad got off the train with his two suitcases. But culture would not allow him to greet his father. His father had to greet him first. But whether his father recognized him or not was not the issue. His father did not acknowledge him. And he walked the miles behind his father, 30 paces, because that's what his culture required, without his father acknowledging him, without his father greeting him, without his father asking him one question. And ladies and gentlemen, that's meaninglessness, because I'm not noticed and I don't matter. But when I understand my Heavenly Father notices me and my life matters, that I am the flap of the butterfly's wing that will produce a tornado down the road. I have meaning, I have purpose, I have identity, and I do not need to live a life full of anxiety and fear. Because the eternal living God crafted for me a story within His story, and I am essential to the cosmic narrative. Number two. A beautiful community. We went to Mexico... Uh, in July, I turned 60, Stu, my son-in-law, turned 30, and Tion was off to college. So the girls surprised us, Meryl and Dana, booked us into an all-inclusive uh, resort at Puerto Vallarta. It was a fabulous holiday. Dana is my reader, well, actually all my kids are, but brought a whole lot of books. And she said, there were Dad, and she threw it across the room, and she said, I think you'll enjoy this. It's called The Boys in the Boat. The scene is said in 1936, 
where a crew of eight Washington, University of Washington boys, students, were put together to row in the 1936 Olympics in Germany at the time when Germany was at its height, as you know, prior to the Second World War. It's a moving story. In fact, when I finished the book, I closed it. I sat quietly on the beach in Boeta and just, just wept. It was a very moving, moving story for me. It, it interested me by the very nature of how the community of, of rowing works. And so I did some more research. And one of the, the, the YouTube clips I, I read, uh, watched rather, was of a British rower who lost, now forgive me, I can't remember these details, the ex-Olympics, 1980-something or other, by a yard from the Italians. They got silver as opposed to gold. And needless to say, they were devastated because this takes decades of preparation, putting the team together, and the, the humility that the coxswain is not the most gifted rower. I, I made the point with Eric, can I say it again, ladies and gentlemen? We who are privileged to leave churches are not necessarily the most gifted, the most capable, the most anointed, or the most anything. The coxswain is the smallest and is normally not a good rower. So, so in, an, in an eight-seater rowing team, you've got the coxswain who sits and calls the strokes. Normally a little bitty person who sits with um, looking at the, the, the end goal, like the, the Cambridge versus Oxford row. They will sit at the end goal and they will call the rhythm. And all the rowers who are, in this case, the men's case, these six foot four beasts, strong arms, big chest, big core, legs that can row it, and they would call it. Their job is imperative to getting there on time, and the humility is they can't row. And at the, at the actual final, and this is a movie, I'm not, this is no kind of, what is spoiler alert, but at the final, the Germans put them, there was supposed to be a draw at the hat, but it was arranged that they got the, the outside arc, which rode into the weather. The inside ones, which Italy and German got by chance, had the smoother ride in. And it's just this remarkable narrative. Now, <clears throat> back to my, my English friend. When they critiqued why they lost by this much to the Italians, they pointed it to one or two moments in which one rower grew weary, can I throw in the biblical verse, of doing good. And their rhythm just was not the same as the rest of the crew, and the way in which they raised their oar was just not flat enough. Now forgive my ignorance for those of you who know the sport. And it was the milliseconds of weariness and distraction that got them to lose to the Italians by less than half a meter. Now here's my point, ladies and gentlemen, forgive me, but this is a very compelling moment. The second layer of the will of God for your life is discovered and defined in community. And in our modern world, driven by rampant individualism, it is a foreign thought. Firstly, because we use dream, my dream, rather than God's will. And secondly, because we think, like Bette Midler, I can do it my way, or Frank Sinatra. I can do it my way. And that is so contrary to understanding that the will of God is done in community. Isn't it beautiful? Adam, perfect man, however you interpret it in the four official thoughts. But here is this man upon whom the Father says, it's not good for you to be alone. Get everything. 
He had God, he had the animal, he had food, he had land. He, according to Genesis 2, he was clearing the land. He had everything available to him. And God said, it's not good that you are alone. Now, to those of you who are divorced, allow me a little bit of passion here, because I am passionate about marriage. You know why? Because our marriage hasn't been easy. I have friends whose marriage has been a lot easier than ours. But we have an exquisite marriage because we fought for it. And in our darkest moments, it wasn't a verse of scripture that sustained us. It was the notion that one day in our 80s, we would walk hand in hand on the beach and declare the wonders of what God has done to us, through us, our children, and whoever else we ministered with. Now, I want to say, dear friends, your community cannot be achieved. I mean, your will, the will of God for your life cannot be achieved alone. If you take Adam, Eve brought a wholeness. It's not this. I'll talk about that in a moment. It's this. And honestly, rampant individualism is destroying marriages. Cain and Abel. God put his hand, for those of you who know the story, I apologize for those of you who don't know. Adam and Eve had two sons, and God received Abel's offering. God didn't receive Cain's offering. Cain kills Abel. And God says, sin is scratching at your door, dude. See, Cain couldn't work with his brother. So I'll tell you what, I'll kill him. Because the will of God is achieved in community. He never knew that. Then Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is wracked with fear and anxiety. They arrive with Abimelech in, in the kingdom of Abimelech. And he goes and he says, Sarah, please tell them you're my sister. Because Sarah is gorgeous by all intents. And just tell them you're my sister, which is partially true because they shared some parents' things. And, and, and so, so, so Sarah goes into the Abimelech's uh, um, castle. I'm stumbling for words because I'm trying to rush. And, and, and God says, to, God prevents Abimelech from sleeping with Sarah. Now, we read that morally. It wasn't a moral thing. They had concubines, they had many wives. It wasn't a moral thing. It was a prophetic thing. From you, Abraham, will come Isaac. From Isaac will come Jacob. From Jacob will come the boys. And the nation of Israel, which would be my prophetic voice to a broken world, will come. And if that is not exquisite enough, flutter the butterfly wings. An old man who can't have a kid, who God keeps saying, I'll give you a kid. And then God says to us Christians, our father Abraham. So God says, I will not let Sarah sleep with that man. Ladies and gentlemen, the will of God is discovered in community. Can I have an, an honest moment? Do you mind? Recently, uh, um, I can't remember what happened, babe, but, but I just felt like Meryl and I just weren't on the same page. We weren't fighting. It just like wasn't cool. And so I went to the Lord in prayer, and I always go a little bit nervy because normally he looks at me as if to say, it's my daughter. You know? So uh, he says to me, son, husbands, Ephesians 5, Love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. And he said, son, the issue here is you don't understand that. Now sometimes doing ministry can be easier. If Meryl's not around because we don't see eye to belly, we see eye to belly button, we don't see eye to eye. Sometimes it's easier because I can just get everyone to agree with me because... The, the team we're working with are all 22, 23. They will think I'm like Jesus, Abraham, Chris. You know, it's like, whoom, like that. So, 
easy to say, guys, this is what we should do. Oh, Chris, that is so clever. And then I go back and I said to Meryl, Meryl's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's so much easier. But, but husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Now, now, the thing that I love in Ephesians 5 is that the same verse, the same passage of text says, Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Now, my job isn't to say, honey, you've got to submit. Her job is not to say, babe, as unto the Lord. I mean, um, uh, like Christ gave himself for the church. See, my prayer is, God, teach me to love your daughter as you love the church and you give yourself for her. Now, you teach me that. Meryl's job is to say, Lord, how can I submit to my husband? Now, culturally, that word submission is not a good word. Because culturally, to many of us, we think that. It's not that. Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, tell us it's not that. It's this. It's a collaborative partnership on mission together where we partner with that assignment in mind. It's about headship. You know what headship is? The Greek word kephale, which means that it's, ah, my job is to resource my wife. She disobeys God if she doesn't let me resource her. She's not got an issue with me. She's got an issue with God because she says, I will be the head. I will be the wellspring of all life in this family. When God says, mm, honey, no, 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 no. Husbands, kephale your wife. Be a resource to your wife. Your job is to let him kephale you. Now, what's my point? In the 38 years we've been married, we have lived in times where one will put 1,000 to flight, two, 10,000. We can take on the world. Anything's possible. It preaches well, sings well, it prays well, but when we are at loggerheads with each other, it's more than halved. One will put 1,000 to flight, two, 10,000, but if we fight... It is less than a thousand, less than five hundreds worth of impact. Because the will of God always gets demonstrated in community. It's a cultural crisis that women won't submit. It's a cultural crisis that men won't lead. It's a cultural crisis that men won't lay their lives down as Christ loves the church. To be honest, I'm still discovering that. I don't fully understand it. Community, community gets lived out on, in, uh, sorry, the will of God lives out on community. Quick story. How am I doing, Yaku? Good. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. Now, I really want to help you. I, I, I really want to help you. And remember, you, you, your job is to weigh it. And, and if anything I say you think is unbiblical, not it, it irritates you. Because I know this message today, everyone will be irritated by something. That's a guarantee. That's a guarantee. But you can't dismiss it unless you can clearly evidence from the text that you disagree. That's the only reason. Not because it's you or your culture or whatever the case may be. So Stu comes to see me to marry my daughter. We're in a pub on the Thames in Kingston because he's from London. So he sits down and he says to me, Chris, I'd like your daughter's hand in marriage. I said, well, before I answer that, I want to know this. Can you live with a woman who's more gifted than you? Can you live with a woman who will get more profile, more recognition, and more applause than you? Will you live with a woman who will be in public spaces way more than you will be? If you can't, please retract your question right now. 
and looked at me across the table and he said, I'll try. And then Dana, I sat down, I said, Dee, can you submit to him? Because he's going to lead you. He's a strong man. Can you submit yourself to his resourcing, to his headship, to his kefale? And they are five years down the road, and I have been so proud of Stu, because Dana gets the recognition when she plays at House of Blues, he carries her equipment, he will play whichever instrument she needs him to play. When she's cooking food, he will go and do whatever. But when we step into the home, no shadow of doubt, he provides leadership with gentleness, but with courage and with boldness. I've got a very strong wife. I've got two very strong daughters. Community is the ecology in which the will of God flourishes. If you really want the will of God for your life, please put community into that sentence, or you will be but a fraction of what God intended you to be. Jesus said this, Mark chapter 3, when they say to him, your mother and your brothers are at the door. Sorry, my imagination runs riot, and I can imagine the rooms full and Mary arrives. Now, we don't know. Our, kind of, our imagination wants this little bitty girl, you know, and that may not be true. We have no idea. But I can imagine uh, Mary like, woohoo, Jay, And, and the brothers are there saying, hey, hey, JC. And, 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 and he just ignores them. He says, he says this, who are my, my mother and my brothers? For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's a beautiful picture. The will of God in your life is fully satisfied in the context of community. Jesus was prepared to, I think tongue-in-cheek, say, well, I don't know who my mother is. My brothers, those who do the will of God. Okay, lastly, and I'll be very brief with this one. Thank you for being gracious. I've been going 37 minutes. And I'm trying to land a whole section which is nigh on impossible. But let me say this quickly. The will of God is cosmic collusion. We're partnering with God in the message of the ages. The will of God is through community, where community becomes the ecology in which the will of God fully flourishes in our lives. And those of you who have had broken families or broken marriages, please understand there's great sensitivity and tenderness in my heart. I can't back away because of the pain, and I understand that I've got two sisters who are divorced. I understand that pain. Lastly, the will of God is a full personal realization. Paul says this, and I really will just handpick a few points when we're done. Uh, Paul says this in Galatians 1, I, Paul, an apostle, not from men or through man. In other words, my, 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 the will of God in my life is not by what others see primarily or what others give me primarily. Galatians 1, Corinthians 1, called by the will of God to be an apostle. I have to know in my inner sanctum. You know, folks, let me tell you, at 58 we planted a church. Our little Genesis account had two months of salary. In. That's it. Now, I'm 58, I should be at my maximum earning capacity, I should be well situated for life by all the world's standards, which is rampant individualism, insatiable materialism, and the pursuance of pleasure. Now, I'm sitting there saying, God, you're kidding, right? At 58, A, church planting is for young men and women. That's what young people do, not for bullets like me. Secondly, I should be at my optimum income. And, and I just see the Father kind of leaning over the balustrade of heaven saying, really, can you trust me? Can you trust me? 
No, but Lord, you don't understand. I mean, I've got a wife and I've got to have a health cover and I've got to love her. And he says, can you trust me? I'm not an apostle, Paul says, through men or through a man. I'm an apostle through the will of God. A few things I want to say quickly. And I wish I could go through it. I'm sorry I can't. The will of God helps me through my journey to face some things. One, I must face my family of origin. Meryl told the ladies yesterday about our story. My story was obviously broken. My father was an alcoholic. He was a brutal man. When he was sober, he was a delight. When he was drunk, he was unplayable. Deep blue eyes, very physical, worked on construction. And uh, we were being trained, Meryl and I were being trained to do some marriage stuff in a particular genre of thought. And uh, this woman said, well, tell us your story. And I told the one story where my dad caught me smoking at 14 and he hit me. He said, if you want to act like a man, I'll treat you like a man. And he took me off my feet. And I laughed. And she said, what? Hang on, hang on a second. She said, that's not normal. I went, oh, yeah, it's my old man. You know, my dad, you know he was. She said, no, that's not normal. See, we all have to face our family of origin stuff. Meryl had to. And she said, but did you share a bit yesterday, my love? Because her, her family is amazing. And I love Ken and Laura passionately, like my own parents, maybe even sometimes a bit more. But the reality is, her family of origin had stuff. And for us to live out the will of God for our life, I have to face my family of origin stuff. And I was an angry man. My anger was born by the pain of grief. I was sitting with an old pastor in his 70s one day and we were just talking and I don't know how it even came up. And I said to him, you know, I struggle with anger sometimes. He said, well, what are you grieving? I said, what do you mean I'm grieving? I'm grieving nothing, I'm angry. And he said, no, but you see, anger is in the grief cycle. And if you're angry, it means you're grieving something. And I just stopped for a moment and said, well, I actually am grieving that I've lost teenage years. I was too scared to bring friends home because I didn't know if my old man was going to be sober or not. I didn't want people to sleep over in case my mom and dad fought. See, the will of God is hijacked by my family of origin. And whether you think you have this incredible family, every family's broken, and if you won't acknowledge your family's brokenness, you're not going to live in the full will of God for your life. Or, in my case, my family was obviously crazy, nutty, and broken. I have to face my own failings, my limitations. It's deep, deep self-awareness, deep knowledge, God. You know, I, I used humor to survive because my old man was so difficult to live with that I just created a culture of humor. Everything was laughed away. When someone always laughs, I wonder what they're hiding. Because even Jesus didn't always laugh. He wept. He lamented. So if I only ever laugh, I'm hiding something. What am I hiding? Because my brokenness is preventing me stepping into the will of God for my life. Meryl and I have said recently it would be the best thing if we'd started this journey earlier. If I'd looked in the mirror and said, Chris, you are, are a broken man. Love Jesus' passion. Love his bride. Oh, I love his bride. I get so angry when people feel the ease to just diss the church the church international, the church local. Sometimes I have to hold everything inside of me because the aggressor in me wants to walk up to them nose to nose and say, who the hell do you think you are? Have you died for the church? If you haven't died for her, please shut up because you probably haven't lived for her. 
either. There's something profound, something dangerous, something beautiful when I face my own failings. When I face my own essence of being, who am I? When is Chris Vina most fully human? What is that essence of being? What does that look like? Not what I do. Who am I? Meryl is a lover of people. Her essence of being is simple. She binds up the broken heart. I've known this since she was 15. Married her at 18. And it didn't matter where we were, Meryl binds up the broken hearted. Churches will not have me in if Meryl doesn't come with, including this one. <laughs> Yaku called me and said, can you come? And I said, look the dates. I said, yes, I can. Uh, and Meryl, and I'm sorry, Meryl, can't, well, can we find another date? Because the essence of being is the life source. It's where God gives life. So we could be in a room of thousands or we could be in a room of five and Meryl's locked into that one person because her essence of being is binding up the brokenhearted. She will find that one person and they will feel like a million dollars. It's not because she's magnificent. It's because God has crafted that essence of being inside of her. And it's from that essence of being that the will of God flows fully. Are you with me? It's not skills that lets the life of God flow. It's the awareness of essence of being. It's who I am. And then it is I face and I'm landing. Thank you, thank you for being so gracious. When I face the essence of my doings, what do I do easily? Eric was saying to me, so what's it been like since Malibu? And I, I find myself talking, and I understand. Sometimes I look back and I, oh, we're we busy planning a church in Tunisia, and we've got a team going in here. And, 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 and he's like, wow, that's amazing. And I think, I suppose it could be. But you see, when, when you are living in the space of the will of God, the essence of doing, it just feels so right. It feels so easy. It's so easy to have faith for. Because it's what's inside of us. I started off by saying, and there's so much more to say, I do so apologize. I started off by asking the question, why is it pastorally that I find people struggle with anxiety, Meaning, fear, shame, identity. And can I suggest as I close, I think part of that lies with our reluctance to embrace the will of God. Your kingdom come, which is his lordship. Your will be done, which is when I'm in the center of your life source. You give me life and I can be life to those around me. But I have to embrace the, the, the realities of who I am. I have to embrace, thank you, I've got two more sentences, to repent of my rebellion, to want my dreams rather than sweet surrender to his will. I said to Meryl the other day, I said, you know, babe, I've never regretted once marrying you. And she looked at me as if to see, was there a shadow of a lie there? And I could say, even in our darkest times, and they have been, for sure, 100%. Never. Because I knew when I married her, my father said to me, my heavenly father, will you look after my girl? That's part of his will for my life. I repent of the rebellion of pursuing those things 
in sweet surrender. And then lastly, embrace the community the Father has put us in. The ecology of His will for my life. I partly humorously say to Meryl, I'm the best husband you'll ever have. Well, because I'll be the only one. But because I know that that's the ecology God has put us in. To my kids when I've... Is it okay to say screwed up in Canada? In America, you can. Uh, I don't mean to be crass. But, but to my kids too, I'd say, I'm so sorry. You know, I, I mishandled that moment. I said the wrong thing. But this is still the best ecology for the will of God for your life. The community... Our community gathers tonight over a meal. We always eat together. Dana will teach the first of our Advent series. It will be fabulous. Next Sunday, Tyler will teach his 23. The week after that, Josh will teach his 23. The week after that, Stu will teach his 30. It's the best ecology for the will of God for all of our lives. Would you close your eyes with me, please? Precious Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Like heaven, like earth. Like heaven, like earth. I thank you for this beautiful bride called Red Hill. I thank you for the ecology, the atmosphere, the mood that you have placed this community in. Your will be done. This is a glorious truth. Even if I've preached it badly or well, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we are part of a cosmic collusion. The flap of my wing matters. The community you place me in is the best ecology for my life. And then the realization of who I am as a broken vessel with the will of God leaking out of every crack. What a story. What a truth to believe in. In your precious name. Amen.